Kent is, uh, by some opinions, the moral center of the play. Uh, the term Earl uh, actually means man of noble birth. It's an ancient Anglo-Saxon word. Uh, basically, it's as high as you can go in the nobility without actually being a blood relative of the king. Um, the king has the power to create earls, so I kind of see Kent as a loyal soldier who did some good service to uh, King Lear, or maybe his family did back in, uh, when he was uh, a young man, and the king rewarded him by uh, making him an earl of the early kingdom of Kent. Um, now, obviously, King Lear is not historical, but there, uh, but the first um, earls were actually created by Earl, uh, well, the first Earl in England was Earl uh, Harold Godwinson, who was appointed that uh, uh, before the Norman Conquest. So the, uh, uh, the earldom um, goes back thousands of years. Um, so um, I see Kent as uh, somebody who has uh, spent his life being um, uh, drilled into him that, uh, um, that the king has um, uh, that service to one's king is service to one's country. And I believe his arc is he starts to question this concept. But at the same time, he he's forced to question this concept because the king banishes him. So he has to try and find a new identity in a way um, because he can't uh, serve the king the way he has been for so many years. Um, in my own interpretation, I actually struggled a bit because uh, when I started this scene, you'll see that uh, uh, in Kent's first scene, the king is absolutely awful to everybody on stage. And because of who I am, I, I couldn't bring myself to think, why would Kent follow this guy and disguise himself as a servant and follow him for the majority of the play when he is clearly old, mad, uh, cruel, and not worth it. But for reasons that I'll get into later, I believe, at least in my interpretation, that Kent finds a new reason to serve Lear. Not because Lear deserves it, but because Kent finds a more noble reason to follow Lear. Um, it's interesting, there are characters like this in other works of fiction. Like, for instance, if you've ever seen Game of Thrones, I think the character of Davis Seaworth is sort of uh, the loyal... Um, the loyal soldier who started out as a smuggler and is appointed the king's um, uh, the king's chief advisor. Well, I say king, but he's actually just uh, 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 the lord of Dragonstone. Um, and uh, but uh, I, this guy uh, uh, Davos, um, I. When I read the book and uh, saw the series, I knew immediately he was like a Kentish figure, and that um, uh, some, and therefore something really bad was going to happen to his lord. Um, what's interesting for both of these characters is that um, their loyalty is ultimately rewarded, but in Shakespeare's version, it's ambiguous as to whether their loyalty, whether they. Uh, how their uh, how Kent's future is going to pan out. But let's get into the scenes now and see how um, Kent uh, grows and changes through the course of the play. Kent actually has the first line of the play. In our version, um, the character description says that his origins are a bit mysterious, but he managed to become a favorite of Cordelia, which brought him into Lear's inner circle. He is fiercely loyal with a touch of Epicureanism. I take that to mean that uh, Kent is a bit wry, a bit rough around the edges. I, if he were an animal, I would call Kent a dog. Loyal um, in, in 
intelligent, but also, um, but also trying, but also he barks at his enemies, and he uh, is a little too angry for his uh, own good. Um, he he also kind of reminds me a bit of Sirius Black, the man who was loyal to the uh, to the loyal, to the good wizarding families, even. His, uh, um, even though he winds up losing everything through the course of the Harry Potter series. This first line, believe it or not, actually sets up quite a bit. It shows, sets up that this uh, tragedy has at its core a political drama. Um, Shakespeare wrote this play right around the time that uh, King James was trying to unite England and Scotland. Um, and since King Lear is about a divided kingdom that uh, it leads to tragedy, um, I think that uh, Shakespeare wanted us to uh, ponder that possibility uh, right off the bat. Kent knows that the king is old. He knows that uh, there has to be a, um, a clear line of succession. He also knows that Lear has daughters, not sons. So the kingdom will probably pass through to their uh, his daughter's consorts, the Duke of Cornwall or the Duke of Albany. And based on the way that uh, Kent treats him through the rest of the play, Kent is not a fan of the Duke of Cornwall, who, if you don't know, if you haven't read the play yet, uh, spoiler alert, he winds up uh, um, uh, being the cruel man who, uh, who puts out the Earl of Gloucester's eyes. Um, so he's a sadistic, cruel guy that uh, um, nobody likes, but especially not Kent. So I think in this first line, Kent is hoping that the king uh, does not give the kingdom to uh, to Cornwall and instead gives it to Albany. But as I think the king surprises everybody by saying that uh, he's going to give uh, divide the kingdom in three and give the best half to uh, well, the best parts to whichever daughter loves him the most. And everybody's stunned. None more so than Kent. Um, not only does he think this is a terrible idea, but, um, but also when Cordelia refuses to flatter her father, um, Lear is enraged, and Kent tries to calm him down and get him to see reason. So the king says that he's going to give Cordelia's third of the kingdom to Albany and Cornwall, and they can fight over it. Royal Lear, Lear says, the bow is bent and drawn, make from the shaft. Let it fall, rather, though the fork invade the region of my heart. Be Kent unmannerly when Lear is mad. Reserve thy state and thy best consideration. Check this hideous rashness. Thy youngest daughter does not love thee least, nor are those empty-hearted whose low sounds reverve no hollowness. Kent on thy life no more. My life I never held, but as a pawn to wage against thine enemies more fear to lose it, thy safety being motive. Out of my sight, see better, Lear. Now by Apollo, now by Apollo, king, thou swearest thy gods in vain. Out, vassal miscreant, kill thy physician and thy fee bestow upon the foul disease. Revoke thy gift, or whilst I can vent clamor from my throat, I'll tell thee, thou dost evil. on to, to to banish Kent and says he has 10 days to get out of his kingdom and if it's found in 10 days he will be executed fairly well king sith thus thou wilt appear 
freedom leaves freedom lives hence and banishment is here Cordelia the gods to their dear shelter take thee maid that justly thinks and has most rightly said Goneril and Regan for your large speeches may your deeds approve that good effects may spring from words of love thus Canto Green Bell Princess bids you all adieu He'll shape his old course in a country new. So the king says that he's going to give Cordelia's third of the kingdom to Albany and Cornwall, and they can fight over it. Royal Lear, Lear says. The bow is bent and drawn, make from the shaft. Let it fall, rather, though the fork invade the region of my heart. Be Kent unmannerly when Lear is mad. Reserve thy state and thy best consideration. Check this hideous rashness. Thy youngest daughter does not love thee least, nor are those empty-hearted whose low sounds reverve no hollowness. Kent on thy life no more. Never held but as a pawn to wage against thine enemies, nor fear to lose it, thy safety being motive. Out of my sight, see better, Lear. Now by Apollo, now by Apollo, king, thou swears thy gods in vain. Out, vassal miscreant. Kill thy physician and thy fee bestow upon the foul disease. Revoke thy gift, or whilst I can vent clamor from my throat, I'll tell thee, thou dost evil. And the king goes on to, to banish Kent and says he has ten days to get out of his kingdom. And if it's found in ten days, he will be executed. Fairly well, king, sith thus thou wilt appear. Freedom leaves, freedom lives hence, and banishment is here. Cordelia, the gods to their dear shelter take thee, maid that justly thinks and has most rightly said. Goneril and Regan, for your large speeches, may your deeds approve that good effects may spring from words of love. Thus, Canto Green Bell Princess bids you all adieu. He'll shape his old course in a country new. And Kent is punished for his loyalty in Act 2, Scene 2 where once again he clashes with Oswald, uh, um, Goneril's sycophantic servant. Um, he's coming with letters uh, to, uh, to give to uh, uh, Goneril, and Oswald is trying to head him off. So the two of them come to, uh, to grief because um, Kent's trying to do his job, and he knows that Oswald has no intention of... Uh, uh, letting um, Kent's letters from the king get to Regan and Goderal. I think that their tr that Oswald's ultimate goal is to pretend that the king's letters get lost in the mail so that Regan and Goneril don't have to deal with him. Um, they've, they've gotten what they want from him. They got his power, so they think that they don't have to deal with him anymore. And Kent's being the honest man and the uh, and the loyal servant that he is, is like no, I'm not gonna solve for the, the stand for this kind of base trick. In while he's in disguise, Os Oswald sa uh, uh, says, "Prithee, if thou lovest me, uh, tell me, art of this house? I love thee not." 
Why dost thou use me thus? I know thee not. Fellow, I know thee. What dost thou know me for? A knave, a rascal, an eater of broken meats, a base, proud, shallow, beggarly, three-suited, hundred-pound, filthy, worsted, stocking knave, and the son of an heir of a mongrel bitch, one whom I will beat into clamorous whining if thou de deny the least syllable of thy addition. Why, what a monstrous fellow art thou this, uh, thus to rail on one that is neither known of thee nor knows thee? What a brazen-faced varlet art thou to deny thou knowest me? Is it not two days ago since I tripped up thy heels and beat thee before the king? Draw, you rogue, for though it be night, yet the moon shines. I'll make a sop of the moonshine of you, you horse and calumny barbermonger. Draw! Away! I'll have nothing to do with thee. Draw, you rascal! You come with letters against the king! What with you? And Edmund shows up with his rapier drawn, and he uh, and Ken's offers to fight him too. With you, Goodman boy, if you please. Come, I'll flesh you. Come on, young master. But then Cornwall comes in, and again, Kent has knows. So he doesn't want to, and he also knows his place. He's disguised as a commoner, so he can't be too combative against his betters. What is your difference? Speak, Cornwall says. You have so bestirred your valor. You cowardly rascal, nature disclaims in thee. <laughs> a tailor made thee. A strange fellow, a tailor make a man? Tailor, sir. A stonecutter or a painter could not have made him so ill, though he had been but two years of the trade. S speak yet, how grew your quarrel? This ancient ruffian, sir, whose life I have spared in a suit of his gray beard, thou horse and zed, thou unnecessary letter! My lord, if you I will tread this unbolted villain into mortar and daub the wall of a jakes with him. Spare my gray beard, you wagtail. Pierce, peace, Sirrah. You beastly knave, know you no reverence? Yes, sir, but anger hath a privilege. Why art thou angry that such a slave as this should you wear a sword who wears no honesty, a plague upon your epileptic visage? What are that mad old fellow? How fell you out? Say that. Sir, it is my occupation to be plain. I have seen better faces in my time than stands on any shoulder than, that I see before me at this instant. This is some fellow who, being praised for bluntness, doth affect a saucy roughness and constrains the garb quite from his nature. He cannot flatter, he. But if not, he's plain. Sir, I am no flatterer. He that beguiled you in a plain accent was a plain knave. Fetch forth the stocks, you stubborn ancient knave, you reverent braggart. We'll teach you. Sir, I am too old to learn. Call not your stocks for me. I serve the king, on whose employment I was sent to you. Fetch forth the stocks. As I have life and honor, there ye will sit till noon. Regan arrives and says, Till noon, till night, my lord, and all night too. Why, madam, if I were your father's dog, you should not use me so. Sir, being his knave, I will. All exit but Gloucester and Kent. I am sorry for the apprentice, the duke's pleasure, whose disposition all the world well knows will not be rubbed or stuffed. I'll entreat for thee. Pray do not, sir. I have watched and traveled hard. Sometime I'll sleep out, the rest I'll whistle. Good man's fortune may grow out as it heals. Give you a good morrow. Good king, the must approve the common saw. Thou art of heaven's benediction, comest to the warm sun. 
but that by their comfortable beams I may peruse this letter. But nothing almost seems miracles than misery. I notice from Cordelia, who hath been most fortunately been informed of my obscured course. So this scene illustrates what the fool was talking about, that Kent's problem is that he is honest to a fault, runs into situations uh, without a lot of craft or cunning or good think, good sense, um, and that he gets uh, angry very quickly, um, especially when it comes to people who he sees as... Um, not worthy of reverence. He doesn't like Oswald because he was made a gentleman despite the fact that he's probably never served um, in an army in his life. Um, he hates Cornwall because Cornwall's a, a psychopath and uh, um, and he hates Regan and Goneril because they're disloyal to their father, the king. Kent's very old school and traditional in that sense. Um, that he's our king, so you follow him. To do anything else is um, is inconceivable. So in this scene, I played very much the uh, the resentment and anger that he feels. Um, I'm the king's messenger. You should treat me well. That's how things are done. And instead, Cornwall fetches the stocks, and he's uh, uh, put in, in there all night. I think... Um, Kent is flabbergasted by um, how cruel and unusual this situation is. His last line um, brings up a, a motif in all of Shakespeare's tragedies. Fortune's wheel. Fortune, or fortuna in the ancient Roman uh, uh, mythology, was the goddess of good luck. And Whenever anything goes wrong in a tragedy, people complain to uh, Lady Fortune, basically Lady Luck. And her wheel was how she um, controlled which men had good luck and which men had bad luck. A man who, was, who had bad luck was at the bottom of the, the Fortune's wheel, and a man who uh, had good luck was on the top. And of course, in Shakespearean tragedy, there's always a reversal. He who's on top of the world is at the bottom in the next. And nobody falls harder than King Lear, especially in the next couple of scenes. In the next scene, I'll briefly summarize because Kent actually is not... Uh, he's talked about, but does not have much effect on, on the scene. Um, Lear is enraged that his daughters are refusing to see him and that they put Kent in the stocks. Lear said, this is, if you do this to a servant, you're basically insulting his master. Um, and this is the scene where finally hits Lear that um, his daughters don't see him as their king, and they don't see him as their father anymore. Any authority he had over them is gone. Um, and he is boundless with rage. Um, he's just completely um, unused to the concept where he has no authority, no title, no um, ability to command others, and he's used to people obeying him and um, instantly. But Regan just keeps stonewalling him and saying, no, 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 I'm not doing this. Uh, you can't uh, um, bully me around. You can't uh, have 100 knights. You can't have 50 knights. You can't have 20. You can't have 10. You can't have one. You will be in my house 
you'll be tended by my servants, and we're not, uh, and we're not going to debate the matter further. And Lear can, uh, cannot accept this answer, but he has no recourse, and that's why he goes mad, because he defines himself by his authority, and he gave it all away. And in the next scene, the famous storm scene, he will start, it, he can't complain to Regan or Goneril anymore, so he'll start complaining to the gods and to nature itself. I think that part of the reason he goes mad is because he's in complete denial about his own culpability. He says in the storm scene, I'm a man more steeped against than sinning. That's simply not true. He gave, he chose to give his authority away to Regan and Goneril. He gave them the right to control his kingdom. Why would they not use that authority? Now it's true they go far, they go too far. They don't uh, treat him the way that they should treat a father. But they certainly behave the way a normal uh, father would. And if the roles were reversed, I don't think it would be too out of the way. Up until the point where uh, where Lear himself refuses, where they refuse to let Lear into their castle at all. And Kent sees all of this and he doesn't say a word. Kent's next scene uh, in our production, he's talking to uh, the King of France in disguise. Um, it, it's a—it's just a random gentleman in another scene. It's really just an exposition scene, but uh, we've ch uh, our director has changed it so it's the King of France, which is good because you know we wonder what happened to him anyway, and we uh, and we already care about this character. So while the storm is ramping up, getting ready for the epic uh, um, uh, rant um, he Kent finds France in disguise and they start uh, talking about how while this storm is happening in Lear's mind there's also a um, this coil brewing between um, Cornwall and Albany so Kent says who's there besides foul weather one-minded like the weather, most unquietly. I know you are. Where's the king? And France says that uh, he's out of sight. But who is with him? None but a fool who labors to outchest his heart-struck engines. Sir, I do know you, and dare upon the warrant of my notes if it is covered with mutual cunning twixt Albany and Cornwall, who have servants which see no less, which are to France the spies and speculations intelligent of our state. From France there comes a power into this scattered kingdom, who already, wise in our negligence, have secret feet in some of our best known ports, and are at the point to show their open banner. Now to you, if on my credit you dare build so far, your speed to Dover, you shall find some that will thank you, making just report of how unnatural and the maddening sorrow the king hath caused to play. What hath been seen either in snuffs and packings of the duke, or the hard rain which both of them have borne against the old king, or something deeper, whereof perchance these are but furnishings? I am a gentleman of blood and breeding, and from some knowledge and assurance offer this office to you. Not. For confirmation that I am much more than my outlaw, open this purse and take what it contains. If you shall see Cordelia, as fear not but you shall, show her this ring, and she will tell you who, uh, who that fellow is that yet you do not know. I am the storm. I will go seek the king. Give me your hand. Haven't you no more to say? 
few words, but to effect more than all yet. That when we have found the king, in which your pain... That way, how this, he that first lights on him, Allah the other. their scanted court courtesy. My wits begin to turn. How does my boy are cold? How cold myself? I have one part my heart is sucking bitter. So Kent shows kindness he'd seen in a while, and it actually ignites some compassion in himself, because he, for the first time in the play, he starts thinking about people other than himself. The fool is cold, and so he tells the fool to go first and come in, and something he would never do if he was still in power. So this is the part where, in a way, I think what Shakespeare is saying with this play is that power is isolating, and sometimes we need to be reminded that we are more than just our titles or our jobs, the faces that we present to other people. We are all part of a human race, and having compassion for others is one way we stay sane. Next scene, Kent invites Lear and the fool in. But uh, Lear is still completely mad, so it's <laughs> it's not easy. Plus, it just so happens that the hovel is uh, haunted by poor Tom, who is actually Edgar in disguise, pretending to be a mad beggar man. shows up and um, and offers them another place to go to a little bit better than, uh, than before um, but this is a fatal error on Gloucester's part uh, because uh, David and Goneril uh, find out about it and, uh, and that's when they take out his eyes over his daughter's cruelty. In fact, he has an imaginary trial for all of them and um, tries to um, uh, find and tries to play judge. <laughs> um, and Kent has a line where he says, Nikki, where lies that patience that you have boasted so oft to retain? Um, Gloucester shares his... Uh, Sadness uh, and his pity for uh, for Lear and Edgar is uh, is crying with such sad humility, uh, seeing the king brought so low. 
unfortunately, Kent has other plans brewing to uh, restore Lear to the throne. Um, he has another meeting with the King of France in Act 4. Did my letters pierce the brute to any demonstration of grief? Aye, sir, and now and then an ample tear trilled down her delicate cheek. It seemed she was a queen over her passion, most rebel-like thought to be king over her. Oh, that it moved her. Not to a rage. Patience and sorrow strove who should express her earthly haste. You have seen sunshine and rain at once. Her smiles and tears were like a meadow brook. Those happy smiles that played on her rifle and seemed not to know what guests were in her eyes which parted lips as pearls from diamonds dropped. In brief, sorrow would be a rarity most beloved. All is overcome. Then she no verbal question. Fate once or twice she heaved a little farther panting. Sister, sister, shame of lady sisters. It is the stars, the stars above us govern our conditions. Else one say, myself, fate and make could not beget such different issues. The poor distressed leers in the town. Sometimes it is better to remembers what we have come about, and by no means will yield to see his daughter. Why, good sir? Sovereign shame, so noble's name, his own unkindness that stripped from her his benediction, benediction, turned her to foreign casualties, gave her dead and dear rights to his dog-hearted daughters. These things sting his mind so venomously that burning shame detains him. Let me forge your name. Of Albany's and Cornwall's powers, say you heard not? Tis so, they are afoot. Well, sir, I'll leave you. Some cause, some dear cause will in concealment wrap me up a while. When I have known a right, you shall not grieve in lending me this furtherance. So in this scene, um, we know that France is on the move and they're going to plot, and Cordelia is plotting a rebellion to overthrow um, Goneril and Regan and put... Uh, we also are, Shakespeare's also teasing us with the possibility of a reconciliation scene between Lear and Cordelia. And we finally get that reconciliation scene in Act 4, Scene 7, where the doctor um, examines Lear and uh, he has recovered his sanity after a long rest though it it's uh he's recovered his patience but uh it takes him a while to realize where he is and who he is and what's going on but first cordelia speaks to kent and says oh thou good kent how shall i live and work to match thy goodness my life will be too short and every measure fail me to be acknowledged madam is or paid all my reports go with a modest truth, no more clipped but so. Be better suited. These weeds are memories of those worser hours. I prithee put them off. Pardon, dear madam. Yet to be known shortens my maid intent. My boon I make it that you know me not, till time and I think meet. Be it so, my good woman. Now, Kent is silent for the majority of the uh, reconciliation scene, but Cordelia's nerve fails her just once when she has this beautiful speech where she says, Was this a face to be opposed against the warring winds? <sighs> alack, alack. "'Tis wonder that thy life and wits at once hath not concluded all. "'He wakes! Speak to him!' And Kent says, "'Madam, do you? Tis fittest.' 
Lear speaks to her, saying, You do me wrong to take me out of the grave. Thou art a soul in bliss, but I am bound upon a wheel of fire that my own tears do scald like molten lead. Lear's scarce awake. Let him alone a while. But slowly but surely, he comes to realize that this is Cordelia he's speaking to, not an angel, not, uh, not a spirit, his own daughter. And he comes to a realization about himself, that he's a very foolish, fond old man. Again, I think that Shakespeare is commenting on the strain of kingship, how it requires a person to fool themselves in a way, to put on a mask that they are invulnerable, um, inhuman, and, um, and higher and better than another person. But of course, as Henry V points out, in his nakedness, a king is no more than just a man. As Richard II puts it, I taste grief, I need friends. How can you say that I am a king? And Lear comes to realize that, this, it comes to the same realization, that now that he has no power, he has a second chance to be with his daughter. And in the ballad that, uh, uh, and the ancient story, uh, fairy tale that this story is based on, um, they are reunited. But Shakespeare comes to a very dark ending. So in the final and most tragic scene in the play, a series of catastrophes happens. First, there's a great battle between King Lear's forces, which is to say the, uh, the forces of France, and the forces of Goneril and Regan, commanded by Edmund, the supposed Duke of Gloucester. And Lear's army loses. Lear and Cordelia are sent to prison. Uh, and then it's uh, pandemonium. You, you see, both Regan and Goneril want to marry uh, um, Edmund, and Cornwall is dead, possibly poisoned. Um, so the two of them squabble a bit, and then um, Goneril poisons Regan, and then Regan stabs herself. Um, then... Um, Edgar, in disguise, comes in and challenges Edmund to a duel and wins. Um, Edmund uh, is dying and he confesses his crimes and also confesses that he ordered, he secretly ordered Lear and Cordelia to be executed um, and tells them to run and quickly get the uh, uh, captain to stop the execution. And at this point, Ken shows up and um, and he he's confused he has no idea what's going on he just says I'm come to bring my to bid my king and master I good night is he not here and Edmund just says keep uh, uh, quick go to the captain to make sure that uh, Lear and uh, Cordelia's lives are spared but it's too late. In the most heartbreaking speech, possibly in all of Shakespeare, Lear comes in holding the bodies of Cordelia and utters three gut-rending howls. And he delivers this terrible speech. Oh, you are men of stones! Tongues and eyes, I'd use them so that heaven's vault should crack. 
she's gone forever. I know when one is dead and when one lives. She's dead as earth. Let me the looking glass that if the mist will burn, will stain the stone, why then she lives. Again, says, is this the promised end? Or image of that horror fall and cease? This feather stirs, she lives. Oh, my good master, prithee away. Tis noble Kent, your friend. Plague upon you, murderers, traitors all. I might have saved her. <laughs> now she's gone. Who are you? My eyes are not of the best, I'll tell you straight. If fortune brag of two she loved and hated, one of them we behold. This is a dull sight. Are you not Kent? The same. Your servant, Kent. Where is your servant, Caius? He's a good fellow, I can tell you that. He'll strike him quickly, too. He's dead and rotten. No, my good lord. I am the very man. Now see that straight, that from your first difference and decay have followed your sad steps. You are welcome hither nor no man else, all cheerless, dark, and deadly. Your eldest daughters have fordone themselves and desperately are dead. So I think. He knows not what he says, and vain it is that we present us to him. My lord, my lord, break heart. I pretty break. Look up, my lord. Vex not his ghost. Oh, let him pass. He hates him that would upon the rack of this tough world stretch him out longer. He's gone indeed. The wonder is he hath endured so long. He but usurped his life. And then the Duke of Albany comes in and says, Our present business is general woe. Friends of my soul, you twain, rule in this realm in the gourd state sustain. I have a journey, sir, shortly to go. My master calls me. I must not say no. Edgar, in the play's epilogue, says, The weight of this sad time we must obey. Speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. The oldest has, have borne most. We that are young shall never see so much, nor live so long. This play, Shakespeare's version is should surprise nobody that Shakespeare's version is the bleakest. What's the most unsettling about this play, at least I think to the Jacobeans that watched it, is that every other one of Shakespeare's tragedies, there's a clear, there's a continuity to the kingdom. Before Hamlet dies, he makes sure to, uh, to uh, give his voice of um, approval to Fortinbras to sit so that it, um, everybody knows that Fortinbras has legal authority to become king now that everybody's dead. In Macbeth, Malcolm comes in and once he defeats uh, Macbeth's army, he's clearly going to be the next king of Scotland. Um, most of the other tragedies don't involve kings. Um, some of them involve emperors, but there's always another emperor to uh, to to take over. In King Lear, there's no assurance of anything, of anyone. Albany doesn't want to rule. 
Paul's dead. Kent, his last lines are fairly ambiguous. I've seen it played in some versions where he's decided, where he's going off to, to commit suicide. Um, it's also possible that he could just be making sure that Lear and Cordelia are properly buried. But in any case, it doesn't seem like he's interested in ruling. We don't know who's going to take over this kingdom. And that brings up the truly terrible thought of what happens if nobody does? Will this era just be lost in time forever? What happens if these old men are utterly forgotten? What could be more tragic than that? And I think that ultimately that is the tragedy of Lear and Gloucester and Kent, that they have nobody to pass on their, um, their stories, their legacy, their lives, and they'll just fade away now. Whoever takes over the, the, the kingdom won't remember them. And at the very least, I suppose Shakespeare could this could serve as a good cautionary tale. Don't fight with family. Don't push the people who love you away. Um, don't act too selfishly. Or all that you are could disappear. So if you'd like to uh, hear the full recording of um, this, and not just Kent's line, and not just me acting, uh, I'll be performing this uh, um, on a sort of, as a sort of online radio play uh, Saturday at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, there are two ways that you can access this. On uh, discord.com, uh, you can search for the uh, Shakespeare on the online Shakespeare repertory company or um, there's a YouTube uh, live uh, video um, which we'll be streaming across uh, which uh, I will uh, put the link in the description and eventually I'll uh, um, if I can get the director's permission I will upload the entire performance for you guys um, hope to hear you Hope you will join us and uh, uh, hope you like my performance as Kent. Thank you very much. And uh, uh, this is the Shakespeare.